Thank you, Tim. Um, we might need to get a uh, less top class worship leader because I'm increasingly finding myself wanting to sing uh, and it's uh, uh, more and more of a struggle. Uh, so um, if uh, you can play the harpsichord badly, we're welcoming you up the front and you can lead us in worship. And uh, maybe that will um, reduce my eagerness. Um, we've got some notices. Uh, normally everything's just the same. Um, we've got some notices. Um, you may know that Resurrection Sunday is coming. I think it's about the, uh, what's it, the, the 4th of April. Um, so on Good Friday, which is the 2nd, uh, we have a kids' Zoom bake-off. Uh, my wife Sam sort of uh, driving that forward. I think there'll be some cookie baking and uh, some sort of uh, Resurrection Sunday-themed activities. So that's at 9 o'clock on Good Friday. And then a couple of hours later, after the kids trashed your house, uh, 11 a.m., we're doing the Are You Smarter Than a Pastor Zoom quiz. We're going to get some prizes. Um, and we're going to make that up as we go along. So I reserve the right to change the format uh, the night before. But um, So we've got a couple of things. We're just trying to squeeze in there um, that's still sort of aware that we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and uh, uh, we've got to, the end has got to be coming soon, isn't it? Coming out of Zoom. I'll be very pleased when I can stop our Zoom subscription. Um, and then on Resurrection Sunday, we'll be here. Um, there'll be a, a we'll, we'll have a, 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 a meeting to praise Jesus, to appreciate what he's done, and it will be online as well. Um, obviously, uh, I can see quite a few people squinting in the audience. Uh, you can't read this, neither online. It is there. Um, if you go to our website, uh, that's there. Um, under Resurrection Explanation Mark, and it's also on our Facebook page. Um, and there, um, this is happening, well, maybe happening, if all goes well, if COVID-19 in this country uh, suddenly comes to levels that they reckon are manageable, and when we sort of maybe exit lockdown on the 21st of June, uh, we're planning a the Little Church Lazy Weekend. So uh, we're all hopefully heading up to the, uh, it's called the, the Stanford Scout Camp in Peace Pottage. You wouldn't believe it's there, but there's quite a lot of uh, um, land to enjoy. We'll pitch our tents um, and have a weekend together. It's not going to be river camp, uh, but hopefully you'll enjoy some fellowship. Uh, at the moment, my idea is, you have some activities for the kids in the afternoon and maybe a campfire sort of worship session in the evening. Uh, so that's kind of the idea. Uh, that is subject to change as well. Uh, I mean, so the camp has got to say definitely yes, um, but at the moment they've reserved it for us. Again, this invite is on our website and on our Facebook page um, and we have invited Elam Crawley and Elam Southwater to join in. Whether uh, uh, how that will go we don't know uh, but it's just going to be uh, a couple of happy campers hopefully enjoying each other's company 
uh, and worshipping together. Uh, so hopefully that sounds good. You can't book anything because uh, uh, nothing's in place yet, uh, but I just wanted to put the word out. If you're up for doing something, uh, the 20th to the 22nd of August is when we'll be doing something. Uh, so hopefully that's helpful. Excellent. Cool. So, bring that here. And um, so, in 1896, there is this celebrated archaeologist. He's, he's famous. Uh, he uh, is methodical, uh, and, and he initiates a few new practices. For instance, when he did a dig, he made sure every single bit of rubbish that was taken out of the excavation area was kind of logged and sort of uh, uh, properly uh, filed. He wasn't like one of these treasure hunters who only after the gold headline bits. He was kind of methodical and that approach has, has been replicated in the archaeology ever since. So he was quite a strategic figure. Anyway, so he was excavating um, this temple complex in, in Egypt. He was actually doing it at a place that I've been. I haven't been many places but I've been to a town called Luxor, and he was there doing some digging in Luxor. Uh, and uh, him and his men were carefully digging with their little tiny trowels and their little brushes that they had. Um, and they unearthed something called a stele. And uh, if you don't know, a stele is uh, a stone slab. Uh, it's taller than it is wide, uh, and it's normally etched with a bit of text, and it, it remembers something. It's kind of where we get our uh, gravestones uh, in the uh, cemeteries, uh, and uh, these things happen through history, and uh, Matthew Petrie discovered a particular stele. The stele was made out of black granite, uh, quite an impressive thing, and it was over 10 feet tall. At the time, this was the largest stele ever discovered by an archaeologist, and so it's quite an impressive thing. Now, on one side of this stele, it described the beautiful temple that it was supposed to be found in. The temple had uh, long gone, but it described some of the dimensions and some of the decorations of this impressive temple. That, what was it? On the other side, it recounted the victories of a particular king, uh, King Murnitak, and it was uh, a story of the various different people that he conquered. So he went against the Libyans and beat them, uh, went against the peoples of the sea. So some of these small nations that uh, uh, appear in the Bible, uh, Egypt conquered them as well. And, the, and this steely recounted them. And if that was it, if that was everything, I wouldn't be bringing you that this morning. But at dinner that night, Matthew Petrie, I imagine, with a cigar in hand and a cognac in the other, uh, leaned back in his leather chair in uh, some uh, um, sort of uh, tent erection on the uh, Egyptian landscape. Um, he was a prolific expert. He'd done all sorts of discovery. He was already famous around the world. And he leaned back and he said this, this steely will be better known in the world than anything else I have ever found. And it's true. This steely, this 
uh, gravestone-like object was the most famous thing he ever unearthed. Why? Well, wasn't immediately obvious, but if you go down the list of different nations and peoples that he conquered, there was this strange word right at the bottom. Um, and it hadn't been discovered before in, in all of their Egypt's hieroglyphics. And they got this um, expert in hieroglyphics to come in. Uh, Spiegelberg, uh, a German, uh, came in and he came over to read it and he, and he read out these symbols. Uh, they may look like nonsense to you, they certainly do to me, but apparently uh, uh, to Spiegelberg, he could make sense of them. And he read out, I see Riyadh. And you're like, and? And so would I respond to that? Um, and Matthew Petrie said, that's Israel, isn't it? And this is the first ever reference to Israel in all of language and all of text around 1200 uh, BC, this says Israel, and it's the first ever mention of the nation. It's the first ever reference. And what does it come from? It comes from the annals of Egyptian conquest. When Egypt was dominant, 1200 years before Jesus was born, the first mention of Israel comes in the annals of uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics. Now last week, hopefully you remember, it was Mother's Day and all you mothers got spoiled and it was a happy day. You didn't do any cooking or cleaning and uh, uh, you were just celebrated and uh, uh, at your right hand was a gin and tonic and your left was uh, a Thornton's chocolate, obviously. Uh, and, as I, uh, and what I did, I, uh, we looked at a lady called Jochebet, um, and we looked at her daughter Miriam. And we began to explore the extraordinary story of Moses. If you are familiar with the story, you'll know that there was a wretched time of famine uh, just under 400 years before. Uh, it was drought and famine, and uh, they were welcomed, this small family of around 70 people, they were welcomed into Egypt by their kinsman Joseph. You know, the brothers had sold him into slavery, uh, and then he'd done a little bit of prophesying and righteous living, and he rose to great prominence and power. And despite the fact all his brothers were a bit mean to him, he welcomed them in, and they lived this life of prosperity in uh, Egypt. Egypt at the time was known as the breadbasket of the world. Uh, if you have ever done a geography lesson, You've probably done a geography lesson on the Nile. It floods annually. It creates these vast areas of silt, which are rich in nutrients, and it just uh, bumper crops every time the Nile floods annually. And so the Israelites enjoyed this, uh, um, uh, all, all the crops that came, and in this time of famine and drought, uh, they kind of uh, 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 prospered in the kingdom of Egypt. And so they grew from about 70 odd people to a group of people that, um, so it says it was about 600,000 men. Uh, so extrapolating that, there was around 2 million. So in about sort of 
300 odd years, they grew from 70 to around 2 million strong. Uh, they had lived this life of um, prominence in Egypt. You know, they were family of this prime minister that rescued them. Uh, but their hosts soon forgot uh, what Joseph had done. And these foreigners and aliens, a story we're very familiar with today, become the easy targets for prejudice and for bigotry. And so the Egyptian king uh, decided to make them personas non grata, to be people that would become the scapegoats for all their ills. And they did it in a particularly insidious task. Um, they did it by killing all the newborn males, all the Jewish uh, uh, male boys born, they were to be quickly executed. It is a brutal and terrible time in Israel's history. Um, and in the face of this shocking evil, there was this uh, young mum, this Jochebed, and her daughter Miriam, and they practiced this uh, love and cunning, this beautiful uh, passion for God's creation, and this deviousness uh, uh, that was just exceptional. And they saw the rescue of a little boy called Moses. Um, this isn't Moses, uh, uh, but it's a picture of a baby just to give you the idea. Um, so, when my wife Sam was pregnant with our first little child, um, she went into hospital at the weekend. Uh, she had these pains that they didn't know where they were coming from and they were concerned with her, uh, um, and so they took her into hospital. Um, on Sunday morning, um, I'm not sure whether I come off well on this or not, uh, but I decided to run church anyway while my wife was suffering in hospital. Um, and the, the staff were coming to her, we don't know what's wrong with you, you need a C-section. And my wife was like, well, I can't because I want my husband to preach in the Sunday morning meeting. Um, so nowadays, you'd be like, what? The husband should be with the wife and you should be doing that and church comes second. Uh, but we're in those heady days, you know, when uh, um, when you just think you can do everything. So Sam's like, no, he's preaching in church, let him do that. And then we'll worry about that. Bless her. Uh, in all her pain, uh, uh, she wanted sort of... Uh, 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 me to sort of fulfill my ministry and, and God bless her uh, for that. And so I preached and she was in pain and she was fobbing off these doctors and nurses uh, with their reasons. Um, and then I finished and bless them, the, uh, uh, the church let me toddle off to East Surrey. I didn't have to put all the chairs and tables away, I didn't have to put all the PA away. And so I raced completely in the speed limit up to East Surrey Hospital. And I got there and then we had to sort of negotiate and then there were emergency C-sections that came in ahead of us. Anyway, so we got to the room, into the operating room, and there was a dozen doctors and nurses with an incredible, impressive feat of NHS engineering to see all these staff doing exactly what they needed to do to deliver this baby. Poor Sam was sort of cut open and little Sophia 
was uh, lifted out. And as they were mending my poor wife, uh, Sophia was put into my arms. And it's uh, a very emotional moment. And uh, just as we were, uh, as, uh, as the elder, just started singing some, uh, uh, some Christian hymns, uh, just whispering, I wasn't like declaring them loud and walking prayer, walking around the hospital bed or anything, just sort of gently sang some uh, Christian hymns. And then it was very weird. I was like, but well, there's an echo in here. <laughs> and sure enough, the medical staff next to me was also singing. And they were like, no, that's not true. And then like every now and again, I'm just toning my voice down. And sure enough, they were singing along with me. And sure enough, the, the surgeon in charge of the whole operation had just come on shift, just as we were uh, uh, came in, like we'd been delayed a bit. And she was a Christian. And we sang together these songs of my little girl. And it was a, it was a beautiful moment. And, and Sam had prayed for uh, Christians to be helping at birth. And they were right there, not just uh, in the background, uh, cleaning the floors, but they were in charge of the operation. And it was a beautiful moment and something that's stayed with us. And uh, it's a, it a story we just remind ourselves every now and again when you wonder how things are going to pan out. Because so often God's got your back at mysterious moments. There is something profound and awesome about a good origins story. And God knows this. He knows that uh, the, the, the beginnings can sort of set the tone for the rest of the life. And uh, there are some biblical heroes that kind of appear on the stage ready-made. You know, you don't know where they come from or where they're going to, but they just appear and they are awesome. Um, so we don't hear anything about the birth of Abraham, about King David, or any of the apostles. We don't know any of their origin stories. Yet for a few, there is an elite number in Scripture where they have this incredible birth and it whispers of their significance later on. So you have Isaac in the Bible. His birth is significant. You have Samson. You have Samuel. You have John the Baptist. And most importantly, you have Jesus. All these have these great origin stories. These moments that uh, cause the hairs on your uh, arms to stick up because it is a holy moment. Angels coming. Prophesied, prophecies erupt, promises are spoken, and there is just an occasion uh, that saturate these beginnings, these origin stories. So, the trauma and drama of Moses' life invites us to look at what happens next. You read of his beginning and you're like, something is going to happen with this guy and he's worth paying attention. You know, this sort of thing doesn't happen every day. I want to know what happens next. It's exactly the sort of thing you have a cliffhanger in a children's book, so they turn over to the next page. It's exactly the sort of moment on a, uh, a bedtime story with my kids that I'll leave it at that and they'll be like, Dad, this is the next 
bit, we want to know what happens next. There's lots in the Old Testament I recognise, even as a lover of the Old Testament, that we can struggle with. There are rules that just seem excessive. There's violence that seems repulsive. There's this apocalyptic language which seems incomprehensible. But the story of Moses is one that we can all get behind. It is universally enjoyed. It has gripped generations of readers for uh, thousands of years. Uh, of all the references in the Bible, Jesus appears most. Over a thousand times, Jesus Christ. Next, understandably, is the, uh, the greatest of Israel's kings, King David. But after that, the second most important name in scripture is Moses. He appears over 800 times in our scriptures and we explored his origin stories last week. And he is worth knowing about. And I just want us to spend some time looking at the story of Moses. Now we're gonna look at the Hebrew text. I thought we were gonna look at it today, but uh, we're actually going to start that uh, possibly next week. We'll see what happens. Um, I want to explore a more recent retelling because it gives us a little bit of extra data that you don't get in the Old Testament. So, and before we go to that, we need to read something else to uh, uh, create some backstory. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 6. It says this in Acts chapter 6. I always feel I've picked up the Bible without that particular passage in it um, when I'm looking throughout the front. Right, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders, signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They brought him um, and they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked at Stephen and they saw his face was like that of an angel. Jesus has risen and is seated at the right hand of the Father and his disciples, this small throng of dedicated followers, have started sharing the gospel. They're starting to say, Jesus is risen. There is something new in town. If you've been to our Tuesday class, you will know that we have started looking at evangelism and how to do it in 2021. How to be like Stephen uh, in our own contexts. 
and uh, uh, we particularly enjoyed a particular way of remembering and retelling the story of Jesus. Uh, Tim Keller has come up with this uh, presentation that goes from incarnation to crucifixion to ascension, but those words are too long. And so uh, I looked around a bit and there is uh, 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 this alternative, cradle, cross, and crown, and who doesn't like alliteration anyway? And so when we uh, share the gospel, we can use this very easy series of words to retell the story of Jesus. Uh, at the cradle, at that manger, there was a moment that God took on flesh and he lived amongst us and he showed us uh, he loved us and what he was like. At the cross, Jesus died and uh, he gave up his body and his blood for our sins. That is a moment of our rebellion and rejection of God uh, being dealt with. And then uh, the crown is Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father. He is coming King and we can look forward to a eternity with him. And you have this wonderful summary of the gospel and uh, it's a story. It's not just a premise. It's not just uh, a series of facts to learn. But it is this wonderful narrative of how God came and saved you and I through a story of a life. And we do well to remember uh, uh, this cradle cross crown narrative as we uh, uh, encourage ourselves with the story and as we remind others of it too. And so as Jesus, as, uh, Jesus is proclaimed, as Stephen tells them about the cradle cross and crown, his peers looked at this and said, you know what, you're telling us a new story. This cradle, cross and crown, it's a new one. And we love the old one with Moses. And it contradicts the significance of this great patriarch. And Stephen goes, no, no, no. It's not a new story. It's a continuation. Read uh, with me Acts chapter 7, verse 17. It says this. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so they would die. We know this. This is something familiar to his uh, listeners and to us too. At that time, Moses was born. He was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed um, outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. And then it says this in verse 22. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. He, Stephen's accused of bringing a new religion, a new faith, something they're unfamiliar with. He's accused of uh, proselytizing for a sect uh, uh, that has just new fanciful uh, ideas. And Stephen goes, no, this Jesus is not a newfangled thing. He is well within the story of Israel. And uh, Stephen recalls Moses in the middle of this sermon. He says, Moses is part of this story. 
You need to remember Moses is pointing forward. Moses points us to the Saviour. That's what he was there for. And Jesus, he is the new Moses. He doesn't remove the old Moses from history. He doesn't override him. Jesus is the new and living Moses. He is the one who leads us out of bondage and slavery. He is the one that leads us out of Egypt into the promised land. And so Stephen is grappling with his Jewish listeners and saying, Jesus is not a new story. It is the same story, but it is the climax of that story. And um, it's something that should be embraced rather than feared. And as I close, I want us to focus on the verse 22. This information isn't anywhere else in Scripture. Stephen says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. This is the last bit of information the Bible gives us between Moses' childhood and him being a middle-aged man of 40. Israel uh, faced oppression. It was in the hold of Egypt at the very peak of the Egyptian empire. This was not a small sideline nation that was ruling over Israel. This was an empire at the peak of its prosperity. It had military prowess that was second to none. We had international prestige that went around the globe. The knowledge and wealth that had accumulated was unprecedented. This weak Jewish infant, the one that should have died, he was raised not as uh, someone on the periphery, but he was brought into the very centre of that empire and he got to benefit from the most important, biggest empire of the time. And he would be in a place where study would have been encouraged, where resources would have been abundant, where opportunities would have been diverse. Um, the Jewish historian Josephus says that Moses actually was so smart that he led some Egyptian armies into vanquishing uh, and conquering other lands at some point. Uh, that is not sort of in our scriptures, but it just goes to show that Moses was went from a place of destitution where his life was threatened to suddenly being uh, privileged uh, beyond imagination. And so daily, the Egyptians trained Moses in a way that meant when he came into uh, his real role, that he could challenge Egypt on its own terms. He could lead a people with experience and knowledge and wisdom. And when it came to making decisions, he had a sound basis in which to do it. Israel was born, and see if this is not familiar. Israel was born by a boy that was wretchedly born, but raised and empowered incredibly. He was a Jew in birth. 
He should have been executed when he was uh, just delivered. And yet he was raised an Egyptian. He was raised as the most prosperous of prosperous people uh, in that sort of period of 1200 BC. And that is Jesus' story too. Jesus had a wretched start. What was his cradle? His cradle was a manger, a feeding trough. He and his family had to escape mass infanticide by Herod, who wanted to kill all the baby boys, and they escaped to Egypt. And their stories are similar in so many ways. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in grace. He was remarkable as he grew up. And then he took our sin on a cross and is now our advocate with a crown. Friends, the story of Moses is so much the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus is one that we need to tell ourselves and tell other people. And I want to encourage you, remember these stories, treasure them, don't take them for granted, don't uh, become over-familiar with them that you think you know it all. Rejoice in them, enjoy them, uh, recount the cradle cross crown to yourselves, to your children, uh, to those around you, because it is the salvation of mankind. Treasure it privately and tell it publicly. Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Moses. Lord God, we recognise in him a child that had very little chance to be alive and that was inexplicably and miraculously grew up to challenge the greatest empire on the face of the earth. Lord God, we thank you that that is Jesus' story too. That uh, he uh, had very little chance as Herod wanted to kill him, and yet he grew up and he challenged the very kingdom of Satan, and he liberated we who love his name. Lord God, I pray that we would treasure the story of the cradle, cross, and crown, and that we would be good at sharing it and bringing other people into this incredible story. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us. And Father, uh, uh, um, we just worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.